This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton. Well, you know, a week from today, we're going to have lots of uh, university and college students from the northern tier heading south to Panama City Beach or Cancun to soak up some rays and kind of forget about uh, all those books they had to crack. Beforehand, all those books they're going to have to read when they get back. Some students, however, will be doing something entirely different. It's called the Stone Soup Bus Tour, and it takes place starting a week from today. It's March 11th through the 15th, and Lana Rocco is a UND professor of communications and director of the university's Center for Community Engagement, and she joins me to talk about this. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here today. This idea seems a bit familiar. Doesn't the UND president typically take out new faculty at the start of the academic year and kind of show them what North Dakota is? That's right. There is a tour for faculty, uh, new faculty in August. And we piggybacked a little bit on this. We do this, uh, we've done this three years now, and it's a chance for students to get out into the rural areas and see what the region is like. So what are the course objectives? Well, we want students to learn about rural communities, and we want them to learn about being citizens and being of service to to a community. So we ask them to think about the assets that communities have, the the role that service plays in a community and how that keeps a community running and, and going. And we ask them to think about the connections in a community and between communities so they really get a sense of how we're all in this in this together, how the region Uh, functions and how communities cooperate and really uh, do better when everybody participates. And that's the name of the the course. The Stone Soup Bus Tour is about that, isn't it? (laughs) And they get a credit. And Uh, they get a credit. How many students? There'll be about eight students, and there'll be uh, two, a graduate student and a coordinator accompanying them, and then I am the instructor for the course. We have a 15-passenger van, and by the time you throw in the pillows and sleeping bags and uh, all those other things, the laptops, there's, that's all there's room for in that van. Are, they, are there overnights, or is this just for comfort for the long tour? Part? No, it, it's overnights. They leave Monday morning, and they don't come back till Friday. Right. So we really depend on the generosity of the community. Uh, they they put us up in houses. Uh, we do have a complimentary rooms at the Spirit Lake Casino. We're very appreciative of that when we visit Fort Totten. So yeah, we have to kind of piece together our accommodations, and the the communities are just wonderful about hosting us. Are you looking for North Dakota students or students from other parts of the U.S. and the world? Uh, anywhere. We do get students from any part in the world. Uh, we get students from uh, urban areas. Um, this year, I think we have someone from China. Uh, we're meeting together tomorrow, so I'll get to meet the students and see where they're, where they're from. But often we have uh, Minneapolis represented, California, uh, maybe Bismarck. So it's a great collection, and they learn from each other. There's a real esprit de corps that develops as they go through this week, and uh, they, they get kind of tired and dirty together, and uh, <laughs> it's, it's really an experience. And it costs less than going to Cancun? Oh, yeah. Uh, there really is no charge to the students. We raise funds to be able to pay for the, the gas for the van. We provide them with a free T-shirt, shirt, and uh, mostly the meals are paid for. The lodging is uh, provided by the communities. So it's really just if you want to buy a souvenir, uh, bring some cash with you. But that's it. How is the itinerary set? 
Well, we're going to start off a Monday going into uh, northern Minnesota. We've not done that before. We're going to go to Carlstad and start learning more about some of the rural communities in northwestern Minnesota. They'll be, uh, and we work with a community and ask them, what, what would you like to show us? What have you got going on that you think students could learn from? So in Carlstad, they'll be visiting the Matrax um, manufacturing company and the Wickstrom's Telephone Company. They'll have some lunch with community residents and, and they'll get to ask questions about how the community functions. And then they'll move on to Edinburgh where they will visit the general store and do a little touring in that small community and uh, they will on Tuesday help with a science fair, getting ready for a science fair, helping um, the high school, the kids in the school do that. They'll move on to Fort Totten, where they'll get a little tour of Spirit Lake um, tribal community. They'll go to Chankdeska Chikana Community College there and really come to understand tribal communities a little bit and how they may or may not differ from other rural communities. They'll go on to uh, Towner, where they'll visit a dairy farm and the courthouse, uh, a forest service project, then on to Bismarck, and we hope they'll get to meet some legislators while they're there. Then on to Tower City, North Dakota, and back here on Friday the 15th. Pretty tired, but uh, a lot wiser and having had a great experience. Now, when you set this itinerary, you mentioned you talked to the folks in Carlstead. Uh, Do they pitch to you or do you call them up and say we've got this thing that I'd like to try in your house in your town we we pitch it to them although um tower city did approach us we uh, we'd had a, a some projects going with buffalo which is very close to tower city and some of the residents said could you work with us we'd we'd really love to have this opportunity to have students visit us and do some things with us so it depends sometimes um we look around and we say well we haven't been to that part of the the region or we've done a project with a community nearby let's try this one we like to do some uh, get some variety in the communities that we're approaching so it's a combination and you'll be uh, sampling indigenous cuisine I think so. Uh, <laughs> you bet. Everywhere we go, you, you never know whether we're going to have lefsa or uh, what we'll have. Indian tacos? Just don't know. Uh, what are the service opportunities in, in what it sounds like a service learning exercise? Well, um, we leave that up to the community. What would they like some help with? Um, I think I mentioned that in Edinburgh, they're going to work with a science fair that the students will be putting on in the, in the school. Uh, but also, not not only are they offering themselves to help with a project, but they're learning about the service that the residents are doing. So they ask questions about, what are you working on here? And what they find out in, is in these small rural communities, that's what makes the community go. Uh, in a bigger community, we, we pay people. We have paid staff who who mow the lawns in the city and the parks and mm-hmm. take care of all kinds of things. Small communities, it's all volunteer, and they really learn that lesson. And the communities get a report. They do. Uh, last year, we put together a, a report, which is available on our website, and we will do another one where we pull together. The students do blogs every day, and they've got a set of questions that they're going to be blogging about that they have to answer. And then at the end, they do a final paper And uh, we're going to pull those together and make a report out of it. And then we provide it back to the communities so they learn what the students learn. And maybe they can find out some things that other communities are doing that are helpful for them that they might like to try. So that's our way of giving back. In past tours, what did your students get the biggest kick out of? Oh, that's a good question. You know, 
one thing that I'm struck by is how students will say, I didn't think there was anything going on in these communities. I thought they were isolated, that people were just bored, they did nothing. And you find out they are really hopping, that the people who live there are so busy, they don't think about being bored. And so they come away with this really remarkable appreciation of small communities and what it takes for them to be vibrant and how involved people have to be to make a community work. And that's what we want them to learn, that they need to be members of communities too when they leave here. I realize you've got your itinerary is, is complex and it's got lots of variety in it, but could you kind of map out a typical day? When do they get up and, uh, you know, when, do they, when are they done? Well, they'll probably be getting up about 7 in the morning, uh, depending on how long the line might be to a bathroom, if they have to all, <laughs> if there's only one available. And by 8 o'clock, they're probably uh, going to be doing breakfast with um, some community members. And then it goes until uh, into the night. Usually there's dinner together with community people. And then about 8 o'clock, we schedule a discussion time where they write their blogs. And then they after they do their blogs, then they talk. And they talk about what did they learn and they share their experiences together, a great way to, for them to process their learning together in, in that discussion. A rich, full day. Now, yeah. w- when does planning start at the Center for Community Engagement for the Stone Bus Tour? Oh, boy. It, it takes a good six months, if, if not longer. We're already thinking out, you know, a year ahead going, well, where should we go next year? How, what readings, what topics, and so forth. So, yeah, it's, there's a lot of planning that goes into a tour like this. Well, last year your uh, motto was, we came, we served, we learned. So you're going to have a new motto this year? Well, that's the same motto. We're getting T-shirts printed with that motto, and uh, they'll wear those shirts again. We like that motto a lot, so we'll, we'll go with that one. All right. Well, thank you very much for shedding some light on the Stone Soup Bus Tour at UND. Thank Lana you. Rocco, appreciate having you with us. UND Professor of Communications and Director of the Center for Community Engagement. More here at now in a moment. Tonight's television lineup on Prairie Public starts with a 60s pop flashback as Peter Noon of Herman's Hermits hosts a retrospective of the music TV show Hullabaloo. Then at 9 Central, the music continues with the British beat as groups from the 60s perform their hits. And at 10, Rick Steves' Delicious Europe. Tune in tonight on Prairie Public. This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton, and the music you're hearing, Galt McDermott, CD with a couple of titles, Shapes of Rhythm and Woman is Sweeter. That's Galt McDermott. All right. Kids Count is a national organization that compiles data relative to the well-being of the nation's children. Its data recently revealed some encouraging news. The rate of juveniles in custody is down sharply nationwide and in North Dakota. Well, joining us to talk about this trend are Tim Towsend. He's the public information officer for the North Dakota Department of Corrections. And Casey Trainer, staff officer for the Division of Juvenile Services at the North Dakota Department of Corrections. Tim and Casey, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Doug. And they come to us from our studio in Bismarck. Uh, first of all, uh, Tim, uh, why the decline? 
Well, one of the major factors that uh, came out of this study is uh, during this reporting period, uh, there's a 35% reduction in juvenile arrests. Um, and that consequently um, has a corresponding effect on the number of juveniles in the system in itself. Um, in addition to that, there's many resources that have been available on the um, pre-adjudication side that have contributed to the lower numbers. Uh, why fewer arrests? Well, there's fewer arrests because there's uh, enhanced screening done by many providers before uh, in-custody situations occur, such as um, uh, attendant care is a, a big program that's uh, statewide in, in our eight, regional off, eight regions within the state of North Dakota. And basically, um, the function of attendant care is to keep kids out of in-custody uh, situations. Um, studies have shown that you know, keeping kids out of uh, least restrictive environments um, is, uh, is going to keep kids uh, from getting deeper into the system. Um, basically, how attendant care works, um, law enforcement may pick up a juvenile uh, for a, a minor offense, such as a, a curfew violation or a, a MIC or truancy, and uh, rather than um, actually placing them in detention, which would be an in-custody situation, they may place them in, in uh, attendant care. Um, then at that point, um, the law enforcement can go back to their primary responsibilities and uh, not have to focus on that juvenile uh, that's in detention. But in addition, then the, the parents then can uh, pick up their child um, and uh, move on with that whole situation. So uh, it's uh, a different kind of intervention early on. Correct. Uh, the Annie E. Casey Foundation has a kind of a, a, a white paper online about juvenile justice issues. And uh, Casey, they say one thing that uh, needs to be done is to combat over-reliance on training, school, incarceration, and pretrial detention. And it sounds like that's what indeed has happened. Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, it, just like Tim talked about on the front end, uh, the back end or the, the more deeper end uh, within the Division of Juvenile Services, the kids who come in um, are all going to go through a 21-day uh, assessment and screening. And what that's going to do is really um, look at risk and need for these kids. And it can allow us to uh, filter them uh, more properly so we can send the kids who aren't a high risk to the community uh, back to their communities, back to their families, or to a less restrictive placement. Um, that's kind of the model is the idea of uh, least restrictive and most appropriate. And when did all this start? Uh, really, the screenings and assessments have been going on within the state for 20 years or so. Um, they've gotten definitely more refined and uh, more specific uh, to our population. The COMPASS screening has been in place for about five years. Uh, that's what the Division of Juvenile Services uses out at the Youth Correctional Center. Um, and it's uh, the, the actual assessment center has been there for about five years. Uh, Tim, uh, the, the, uh, juvenile, the Youth Correctional Center uh, used to be called uh, the Reform School. Uh, it opened in 1903. Uh, it's, uh, I guess it got its name changed to Youth Correctional Center in 1995. How many juvenile offenders are currently incarcerated at the YCC? Well, we're open enrollment, so we have a changing population every day. But I believe today we have approximately 75, 75 residents at the school. That's a pretty low population. What would it have at its peak? 
Um, well, I've been at the facility for 27 years, and the highest I've ever seen is about 115. Okay. Uh, what kinds of offenders are sent to the YCC? Well, really, it, the offense can vary um, quite a bit. Uh, what we're looking at is the, the kids who have gone through the court system and have continued to struggle. So they're placed on the Division of Juvenile Services. Now, everyone placed on the Division of Juvenile Services will go through the assessment center. Um, only a handful of those kids will end up at uh, the Youth Correctional Center um, under a treatment status. And really, those kids are going to be the ones showing up um, through our assessment uh, to be the most high risk. So they need um, possibly extensive drug and alcohol treatment. Maybe they're uh, really far behind in educational services. Um, they need uh, to learn some more pro-social tools, uh, need to go through cognitive behavioral interventions, those kinds of things. Uh, Casey, uh, maybe uh, if you and Tim could share the mic for a while. We've got an engineer trying to, trying to fix the uh, audio level there. but okay. uh, no problem. We, we can hear you better, I think, if you use the same mic. Okay. Uh, what about the workforce? What kind of training do uh, uh, youth correctional officers have? Well, um, the minimum qualifications for our staff that work uh, direct line with, with the juveniles, we require a four-year degree or four years of related work experience. So it's quite extensive. Um, and then with that in mind, we, we do expect quite a bit from our staff as well. Uh, we were talking about the, uh, the school itself, and uh, you, you mentioned some high risk. There is a particular, there's Pine Cottage there. Is that the name of the, the building that's for high-risk offenders? That's correct. And, and how is that defined? Once again, uh, it really reverts back to uh, the assessment. And now... This will give you some basic information um, based – the Compass will give you basic information on, uh, you know, some of their needs, and we can start case planning around those needs. So if they're a real high-risk individual with a lot of um, needs, they're more than likely going to get placed in a more high-risk facility. For example, um, if they have an extensive gang background, they could be placed in Pine Cottage. Okay. And uh, if they're a, a potentially a danger to themselves? Yep. Um, and we treat every individual that comes through YCC as if there's a potential that they could be self, have self-harming behaviors um, just because of the population we deal with. So um, as soon as a kid will walk in the door, we're going to be doing um, suicide risk assessments and mental health screenings on everyone. And that will um, carry over if they move to a different facility or to a different placement on campus, we're still going to be doing those risk assessments. Tim, are boys and girls held at the YCC? Yes, we have both boys and girls. I believe right now we have on custody 15 girls on campus. Is that a typical ratio of boys to girls? Yeah, that is. And uh, what are the typical uh, girl offenses? Well, a lot of it is pro property offenses. Um, and we have a lot of status offenses that go along with that, but primarily it's the property offenses. Just to come to the Youth Correctional Center, you have to have some type of uh, basically criminal offense. Uh, let me ask, uh, Tim, do corrections officials, uh, professionals in your business, have an opinion about initiatives that take place in legislatures like the North Dakota legislature about early childhood education in terms of how that might reduce juvenile arrests and offenses? Yeah, we believe strongly that education is a uh, – we're a strong advocate for education. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, just this year, um, the school uh, – actually, the Department of Corrections uh, received uh, a national award for their read-write program. 
Um, what we've recognized is with um, with the juveniles at our facility, um, within 20 sessions, they've increased 2.6 grade levels in their reading scores. And we've also realized within that same amount of time frame um, with the adults, uh, because there's a number of adults in the, on the uh, correction side, that they have also increased by approximately four and a half grade levels in that same time frame. We put a heavy emphasis on education um, at the Youth Correctional Center. That's a that's a core comp- core program that um, basically all of our students are involved in. So there are actual classes during the day? Correct. They generally are going from about 8.30 in the morning till about 3.15 in the afternoon. And would these be the normal classes for, you know, age-appropriate grades? Yeah. What happens with with the students that come into our facility, like I said, generally they're quite a bit behind educationally. So we do academic testing prior to them uh, going, getting into any classes. And then we put them in the appropriate um, classroom. And um, the, the instruction is a little bit more um, individual based on the needs of the, of the kids. Um, we may have a teacher that might have uh, be teaching two or possibly three, class, three different uh, classes in, in one uh, particular period. Um, but we have to do that because every every child that comes into our facility is at different a different place as far as their academics. Sure, and if you've got uh, seventy five students there, about how many teachers would you have? Uh, I think instructional teachers. I think we have about seventeen instructional teachers. Well, that's uh, quite a group of teachers to be able to draw yeah. from. Yeah, a lot of, a lot of needs with those kids because there's many kids that are on IEPs and specialized programs, so they do need that individual instruction. Uh, well, these kids who come in, and, and you say you make this assessment, there's almost like a client treatment uh, relationship, it sounds like. Uh, do a lot of them come in uh, with uh, abuse issues or th- yeah. that kind of thing? Just about anything you can imagine, um, our, student, our students are coming in with um, – um, just to throw some statistics out at you, if, if you if you got a minute for that. Oh, yes. Um, we got 63% of our juveniles come in with mental health issues. 74% have substance abuse issues. Uh, 69% have family instability issues. 64% have academic problems. Um, 89% have cognitive reasoning or how they're thinking about different issues. That's uh, 89%? 89%. Wow. Uh, and we've got a program um, that we've had at the school for quite some time that uh, really addresses the cognitive uh, piece as well. So uh, we've we've seen some good success with that. And then 81% of our kids also have just a total lack of social skills. You know, sometimes I really look at, at, at the juveniles that we have as not necessarily needing rehabilitation but habilitation, mm. which means basically they probably may not have come in with the skills to begin with. It's rehab means you relearn. Um, I think in many cases our, our students that come to the Youth Correctional Center probably have had uh, really a difficult time even uh, grasping the concept initially. Uh, describe for us the, the living arrangement there. Uh, uh, how many in a room? Uh, Typically, um, uh, unless like Tim was talking about when uh, we're at our maximum capacity, most of the time every student will have their own room. Um, there's four different cottages on campus, so they're split up depending on their needs and um, they're obviously separated by gender. Um, they have a dining hall on campus, so as long as their behavior is appropriate, they're going and eating at the dining hall. Um, sometimes during the weekends they'll cook meals within the uh, cottage as well. 
Um, they have chores on, that they do on a daily basis and um, functions. Um, I think we're still having some audio problems. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so uh, it's a pretty um, structured daily routine. Okay, well, we'll get our microphone circumstances uh, straightened out here with uh, Tim Towson. He's a PIO for the North Dakota Department of Corrections, and Casey Trainer is a staff officer for the North Dakota Department of Corrections. We're talking about juvenile justice in the state, and we'll continue our conversation with Tim and Casey after the news. This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton, and we're speaking with Tim Towson and Casey Trainer with the North Dakota Department of Corrections about the state's juvenile justice system and some encouraging information about a decrease in the number of juvenile offenders that are being incarcerated in the state and nationwide. Uh, do we need to make any changes to our facilities for juvenile offenders? Do we have what we need? Um. But- for uh, the Youth Correctional Center, we follow a program called Performance-Based Standards, which is um, an evidence-based, uh, research-based um, program that looks at all sorts of outcomes, whether it's health, mental health, um, programming, uh, safety, order, security, all those items. And what it does is it generates a report that um, compares us to the national averages as well as how we've d- done in the last 10 years or so. Um, what we've found is, especially within the last couple years, is we've been performing at about as high a level as possible. Um, it's uh, one through four ranking system, four being the highest. And uh, our, assessment sen- our assessment center and the correctional center have both been at uh, level four for at least three years. So I, I would say pretty comfortably that um, we're, we're doing what we need to be doing with what we have. In, in addition to that, Doug, though, uh, we always are looking at different ways that we can do things better. And so uh, with other programs that we have on, on site, we're also looking at making sure that the programs are evidence-based. So we want to make sure that we're looking at it from a holistic standpoint that we're not just identifying our assessment center, but all programming that happens at the youth correctional center as well is going to be evidence-based. Well, again, before the break... Those statistics that you shared with me, uh, the one that just, I mean, they're all big, but that 89% of the people, the, the kids there uh, demonstrating some cognitive difficulties, th- that seems to be just a very red flag. Well, And it is, um, but that's why they've gone through the court system and have continued to struggle. And what we've found by that is um, kind of going hand in hand with the Casey data is that we are getting the appropriate kids. Um, we're getting the ones who are really should be in the deep end, who are having difficulty, who um, probably shouldn't be placed at home. Um, so we're dealing with the appropriate ones. Okay. Well, the the Casey uh, white paper goes on to uh, emphasizing attention being spent to the parents and families of court-involved youth. Does North Dakota do that? Definitely. Um, we have a number of family services uh, throughout the uh, even in the, in the court system, but also in the Division of Juvenile Services. Um, we have, um, well, our least restrictive placement idea is based on the fact that these kids are going to be more successful if they're home with their families. So when they're in, if we can get them back in the community, if they don't pose a risk, we want them with their families. Um, and they, we will still want to offer them services within the communities um, to you know build family relationships and work on those items as well. Once they're 
at YCC or in another placement around the state. Um, we're constantly doing um, what we can to build those family bonds, whether it's uh, visitations, um, phone calls. Um, we do surveys across the state um, trying to generate information of how it can be more beneficial for the families and how they can uh, you know, see their kids more often and what we can do to help them. Well, with, with 75 children in this uh, youth correctional center uh, west of Mandan, it would seem that for a state of about 700,000 people, that's not a lot, but it does suggest that there are 75 kids at least who may not have very good families. Uh, what happens after they get out? When we uh, go through the assessment process, we're really case planning for any possibility whether they're going to go home, uh, go to another placement, or stay at YCC. So there's they're already formulating um, the next steps, uh, whether they you know go right home or they go through um, YCC. There's already a plan in place for where they're going to go um, when they're back in their own community and who's going to be taking care of them, um, what kind of services they need, um, whether it's aftercare or um, you know just getting a job. We'll have that set up through our community case management. And also, uh, Casey was mentioning home and the Youth Correctional Center, but there's a number of different placement options as well in between both of those, including group homes, residential treatment facilities, and such. So we really try to match up the needs of the child with the appropriate placement, but the ultimate goal always is to get that child placed back at home. Okay. One of the uh, other elements in the Annie E. Casey uh, white paper was to – basically telling states to take aggressive steps to reduce racial disparities in juvenile justice. How does North Dakota do there? Well, um, I think with um, most states, there is a struggle for racial disparity. Uh, What we've really tried to focus on is um, we have the COMPASS assessment, which uh, is validated for our population for this state. So when uh, juvenile comes through our system, we're really case planning and working around that individual's needs um, based on that assessment. So they're they're getting services based on their needs less than their gender or ethnicity. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think uh, you know there's always room for improvement in that area. How many juvenile offenders that were tried in adult court are currently serving time in the state's adult penitentiary? Zero. Okay. That seems to be another Annie Casey piece here, too. Limit the number of youth tried in adult courts. Yeah. Well, if I understood the question correctly, um, youth that are um, placed in adult, like in the penitentiary, is that, mm-hmm. what, was that your answer yes, to that question? Yes. yes. We have zero, zero juveniles in the uh, state penitentiary. Uh, the numbers that I started out with were indicating that there was a sharp decline in juvenile incarceration, and uh, it was – more significant, I think, for the nation as a whole than North Dakota, but they were both pretty healthy. The nation as a whole was something like 37% down, and North Dakota was down 23%, I believe. Uh, but have the, has the, the numbers that make up that assessment, have they changed? For example, uh, Annie Casey says prevent the confinement of status offenders like runaways. Did we used to count runaways in those statistics? Well, um I believe over 20 years ago, um, the Youth Correctional Center used to take in status offenders, which would include runaways. Um, but that was many years ago. So, uh, as far as the as far as runaways uh, being considered in, in custody, like I said, there's so many pre-screening um, 
entities out there right now that uh, most of those, I believe, are screened out um, as not being appropriate for being in a secure facility or secure custody. Okay. So at this point, uh, your take on it is that North Dakota is doing very well. Of course, you both work for the Department of Corrections, <laughs> so uh, we, we have to consider the source, gentlemen. Uh, but uh, but uh, you're, you're feeling pretty good about the operation. Definitely. Yes. And what's next, though? What, what do you, what's the next way to make it better? Well, um, like we talked about earlier, uh, integrating more family services and um, doing more to build those uh, family um, units and, because what we're finding is once they get back in the community, that's going to be one of the number one um, reasons that they don't reoffend. So we want to you know, build those as best we can um, within the department or within uh, – the Youth Correctional Center, we're constantly um, working on evidence-based practices to increase our um, effectiveness in treatment, education, um, and any kind of uh, services that we're doing there. Well, I want to thank you both for joining me today to talk about this. Tim Townsend is PIO for the North Dakota Department of Corrections, and Casey Trainer is staff officer in the Division of Juvenile Services for the Department of Corrections. Thank you both, gentlemen, for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. And then we're going to have a discussion about genocide and Sudan in just a moment. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public, know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. Here at Now would like you to contact us if you have comments, questions, or guest ideas. Give us a call at 1-888-755-6377 or write us at hearitnow at prairiepublic.org. This is Here at Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton, and we're going to change subjects now and talk about the Center for Human Rights and Genocide Studies at UND and kind of a collaborative uh, presentation with a fellow from NDSU. A couple of professors are in our Grand Forks studio. I'm going to welcome Professor Greg Gordon. He's the director of UND's Center for Human Rights and Genocide Studies and an associate professor of law. And Professor Kevin Brooks is visiting him at UND. He's chair of the English department at NDSU. And what we're talking about is Sudan and South Sudan. Gentlemen, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Uh, give us a little bit of history, uh, Kevin. Uh, uh, this actually goes back years and uh, is, is still in a bit of flux. Uh, tell us what the circumstances are between Sudan and South Sudan. Sure. So the... Uh, Sudan was a country, the largest country in Africa from the time of uh, the European colonial markup of Africa until 1956. But the country was really divided into two halves, a northern Arab half and a southern African half. And uh, in 1956, when the, when, uh, the country gained independence, 
uh, there was already a civil war taking place where the Southerners felt like they weren't getting representation, appropriate representation in the new government. So from 55 to 72, there was a civil war trying to earn that representation. Then there was a brief break in uh, the civil war. And back in 1983, it started up again. This time the issue was primarily the imposition of Sharia law on the South. That lasted for 22 years. Finally, a comprehensive peace agreement signed in 2005, and then the southern Sudanese voted for independence, and that was actualized in uh, July of 2011. In the meantime, there was an awful lot of strife. Uh, there was a, a, a warlike action going Absolutely. on. Absolutely. Civil war for 22 years, longest in Africa. Uh, uh, Greg, uh, talk about your organization, the Center for Human Rights and Genocide Studies. What is a place like Sudan, South Sudan in particular, uh, what kinds of lessons does that offer? You know, it's a, a perfect uh, subject for us to be dealing with right now. We've had presentations uh, from other experts uh, about other parts of the world and Africa, uh, including uh, Rwanda, uh, Darfur, but we really haven't had uh, this kind of presentation uh, regarding South Sudan. So the object of the center is to raise awareness about uh, human rights issues around the world. And what's incredible about this is not only are we getting uh, expertise about South Sudan, but we're also getting it from someone who's right here in our own backyard. Uh, Kevin Brooks has, is doing amazing work. And it's nice to see that after all the rivalry in sports, that UND and NDSU can come together when it comes to academic matters uh, and matters of human rights, and we can put on a program like this. And uh, Kevin, you were working with uh, Deb Dawson on a on a uh, documentary. Correct. We actually made the documentary in 2008, or it came out in 2008. And since then, we've been working on a foundation of the same name, African Soul, American Heart, and we run a school for orphan girls in South Sudan. That's interesting because the the movie, uh, African Soul, American Heart, tells kind of a lost boy story. Correct. Uh, tell us the lost boy story just to refresh people's memories. Sure. So part of this uh, civil war, the second civil war from 83 to 2005, involved uh, the southern Sudanese sending their young boys, primarily ages often uh, identified between about 5 and 15, tried sending them to Ethiopia to get out of the country so that they either wouldn't be killed or captured, taken to the north and enslaved uh, in the north. And so they became the lost boys wandering across the, the desert or savanna of, of South Sudan, finally arriving in Ethiopia. They just walked a tremendous distance. They did, and anywhere from 150 miles to 600 miles, depending on what part of the country they were coming from. Under very, very difficult circumstances Absolutely. the whole way. Yeah. So, so now there's a girls' school in South Sudan. Correct. Give us a little information about that. Sure. So the reason that it's a school for girls who've been orphaned is that we wanted to identify the most vulnerable population in the region and in the village. And we initially started out just thinking orphans specifically, but then we realized that uh, the girls were particularly vulnerable. Uh, we also were reading and learning that uh, the education and protection of girls is absolutely essential to the development of any country. And so we thought if we would focus our efforts there that we would get a ripple effect that uh, girls, in fact, when they get educated, 
do better things for their community, are become better parents and better community members. They reinvest more of any money that they earn back into their family and their community. And so by focusing on that group, we hope to make an impact that goes beyond just those individuals all the way out to the village, the region, the whole state. And I think over the last few years, at any rate, your colleague, Deb Dawson, has actually had fundraisers uh, to obviously fund the school, but also to provide undergarments for these girls because right. that gets in the way of their education if they don't have them. Yeah, we've had a fun event in Fargo the last four years that we call Get Your Panties in a Bunch Lunch. And uh, what we do there is we focus on just one element of the issue, and that is the fact that girls often drop out of school when they reach puberty. Uh, and so by providing pads, reusable pads and panties, we can take those to the village and the girls can stay in school. Uh, the reusable part is the fact that there's no waste disposal system there, so we wanted to be environmentally friendly and uh, also provide a model of something that the girls can now make themselves. We got a couple of uh, those old-fashioned pedal uh, sewing machines there, so girls can now make their own as well. But it's also really an outreach program for our school because the girls... We have these great photos of the girls walking through knee-high water, carrying 50 pounds of pads and panties on their heads. They're in hockey bags, which is a nice <laughs> kind of uh, juxtaposition, but they're, they're taking them about two or three miles over to the next village to deliver those to the girls at that village. And so our girls do this kind of outreach in the region. Uh, Greg, uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, we were talking about the history of Sudan, North Sudan, yeah. or Sudan, Arab, uh, South Sudan, African. Uh, well, we have lots of those refugees mm -hmm. in the Fargo-Moorhead area, particularly yes. in Fargo. Uh, we have the Arab Sudanese and the African Sudanese here. So it, it, it's kind of an interesting opportunity to, uh, I guess, see how they transfer into a di completely different culture and how they interact here. How yeah. do they interact here? Absolutely. Well, it's a challenge. And actually, we have them in the Grand Forks area as well. And I want to say that on Wednesday, we're doing a panel session on integrating refugees into our communities and the role that universities can play. So that's specifically going to be the focus of our, our discussion on Wednesday. Um, there are tremendous challenges. I think um, we have to recognize that this area is becoming more diversified and that we're getting refugees from different parts of the world. Um, but we are not doing enough really to help them, to let them know that they're welcome and to give them the resources that they need to, uh, to function here effectively. And we absolutely have to do that. So we're hoping that, that uh, Kevin being here with us this week will help highlight that, uh, especially the panel on Wednesday. And um, we, we were working with the Global Friends Coalition, which is a group here in Grand Forks that works specifically on these issues. Um, and Robin David, one of our professors, is president of the board of directors. Hal Gershman uh, here in Grand Forks has been a, a very uh, uh, important player in that, and they've done tremendous things. So we have a lot of work to do, but I think we have some foundations in place uh, to make this happen, and we're going to see more refugees coming in. I just wanted to say that uh, things in, in South Sudan are still very difficult. Uh, and uh, when you asked me about highlighting it in our programming, let me just say that right now in the Nuba Mountains, uh, arguably uh, crimes against humanity, possibly even genocide, is going on as we speak. And so there are continuing problems, and we, we have to let people in our region know what's going on. So uh, I appreciate that we have this forum and that we have Dr. Brooks here this week. Uh, 
Kevin, uh, how are relationships maintained between the Sudanese who find themselves in the Red River Valley and their relatives in South Sudan? Well, uh, with the technologies that we have available, they're surprisingly good. Uh, we have some friends in Fargo who will look at our project. They're familiar with our project, and we'll show them some pictures of the girls, and they'll go, oh, I know that girl. That's, uh, that's a got. She's my niece. Or you know, this is a cousin. This is a daughter of a cousin, things like that. So uh, the, the folks who have been resettled to Fargo are very aware of our project, very aware of the, the kids who are actually in the schools there. We actually had a very generous uh, young man is raising uh, a family of four in Fargo, give us quite a sizable dona- donation because he knows that the money that he's donating is going to help not just his people in the country in a general way, but is actually directly impacting his family back home. Well, the film, African Soul, American Heart, was shown at noon today at the Memorial Union Lecture Bowl. It's going to be shown again when the rebroadcast of Here It Now is taking place this evening at 7 at the Empire Arts Center in downtown Grand Forks. Uh, how was the attendance at the noon meeting? Well, we we are having a blizzard right now. It is. <laughs> yes, a, a, we've noticed. You know, and so while we didn't have a huge turnout, um, I like to say that quality is more important than quantity. We had a great question and answer session afterward, and we streamed it. So our hope is that we'll, people will get it on our website online. If you go to und.edu, A to Z, and go to C, Center for Human Rights and Genocide Studies, you'll find it there. And we're going to make the video available uh, through the center to people who want to see it here in Grand Forks who didn't get a chance because of the weather. Also, I want to point out that tomorrow night in the East Asian Room of the Chester Fritz Library at 7 p.m., uh, Kevin's going to give his keynote address on uh, building nations um, and looking specifically at South Sudan as an example. Uh, And that is going to be, I think, a very important um, complement to the films that we're seeing today. Well, I want to thank you both for joining us to shed some light on this issue and the fact that we have a good representation of Sudanese refugees right in our own backyard. Professor Greg Gordon, Director of UND Center for Human Rights and Genocide Studies, and Professor Kevin Brooks, NDSU Chair of English. Thanks a great uh, deal for joining us today, and Dakota Date Book is next. Support for Dakota Date Book is provided by Attorney Daniel Buchanan of Buchanan Law Office in Jamestown specializing in elder law and estate planning. Information on these and other legal matters is available at 252-6604. This is Dakota Datebook for March 4th. Fist fights and hilarity reigned at the state capitol on this date in 1921. While nonpartisan leaguers attempted a political coup, their rivals, led by two Irish attorneys, fought back long into the night. The entire comedic drama ended well past midnight in the chambers of State Supreme Court Justice Luther Birdsell. The entire charade began as a minor political maneuver on the part of Attorney General William Lemke. Lemke, a staunch League member, hoped to discredit political rivals serving in the House of Representatives. The League-controlled Senate, led by Lemke, brought up charges against the House and proposed an investigation into expenses, issuing subpoenas for attorneys Francis Murphy and John Sullivan, two local Irishmen who served as counsel for the House Audit Committee. Murphy and Sullivan were to appear before the Senate at 7 p.m., but the two men believed the actions of the Senate to be unconstitutional and ignored the requests. At 9 p.m., Lemke ordered their arrest, and they were quickly found in the Bismarck Theater. When arraigned before the Senate, however, both men refused to testify. 
A shouting match ensued, with league members calling for the belligerent attorney's imprisonment and others calling for their release. Several motions were made and ignored, and although the warrant against Murphy was dismissed, a second warrant was issued for the rearrest of Sullivan, who refused questioning once again. A fistfight erupted between former state auditor Carl Kaczynski and a leaguer at the doors of the Senate chamber. Despite Kaczynski's victory, league members won a vote to jail Sullivan. While he was being escorted from the chamber, a second fight broke out in the corridors of the building between Seaman Smith, former county sheriff of Golden Valley, and a local steam fitter. A third fight was also recorded in the Supreme Court Law Library between the former state auditor and the son of the state bank examiner. Finally, shortly after midnight, the matter was brought before Supreme Court Justice Birdsell. Birdsell ruled in favor of Sullivan and the House of Representatives and ordered Sullivan's immediate release from jail. He ruled that the Senate had no basis to investigate the House and condemned the brawls, fistfights, and scenes of wildest disorder that reigned in the Capitol that evening. Today's Dakota Datebook is written by Jamie Job. I'm Merrill Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota, with funding from the North Dakota Humanities Council. This is Here It Now on Prairie Public. I'm Doug Hamilton, and we've got a couple of minutes here, and I want to have a little extra time to share a giveaway with our listeners. The Fox on the Fairway is coming to the Harwood Prairie Playhouse. Uh, It starts this Friday, March 8th, and we have tickets to give away. It's, uh, uh, well, it's a farce. It's a lot of fun. It's a tribute to the great English farces of the 1930s and 40s. And in order to get your free tickets, and we'll give two away each day, uh, you will have to email hearitnow at prairiepublic.org. That's hearitnow, all one word, lowercase, hearitnow at prairiepublic.org. And uh, you'll have free tickets to the Fox and the Fairway this Friday at the Dawson Hall located at Bonanzaville in West Fargo. That's the first to email us, the very first one to uh, come. And, of course, they come with a timestamp, so we'll know. (laughs) Okay, good luck. Tomorrow on Here It Now, conservation agriculture is a growing trend, and it's the subject of Roger Ashley's presentation this week in Medora. Uh, Ashley is an extension specialist with the Dickinson Research Extension Center of NDSU. And Marilyn G. Wax, an NPR senior business editor, will join us tomorrow to discuss the economic impact of sequestration. And we'll also have a natural North Dakota essay from Chuck Laura at Dakota College in Botno. And uh, maybe even a little talk about the UND Writers Conference, which is getting underway pretty soon. Maybe a, an essay about one of those featured guests. So tune in tomorrow on Hear It Now and hear all of that and who knows what else we might bring your way. In the meantime, if it's snowing where you are, it'll get green in a few months. Have a great evening. ¶¶